church and our community. Praise the Lord. I've got a lesson for you today on the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. I'm not, not really to take ten lessons to teach the Ten Commandments properly, but I just I was in the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy last week, and I've just been lingering in that area, and God just put it on my heart. So I'm going to do an overview of the Ten Commandments and try to teach about the first three commandments if I can. But if it goes too long, I'll cut it off at two commandments or one commandment. Don't worry about it, all right? I'm not going to go too long. But the Ten Commandments are relational. Relation. Everything about them is relational. God's a God of relation. He's a God of, of relationships. He wants a personal relationship with each of us. And then he wants us to have good relationships with each other. So really, when you look at the Ten Commandments, it, it's about relationship. Now, what we think of when I think of the, the Ten Commandments is the movie when Charlton Heston stood up to Yul Brenner and led the children of Israel out. I know that movie's over 50 years old. I remember as a little kid watching the Red Sea split. I thought that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. But it's more than just a movie. You know, the Ten Commandments is something uh, really powerful because they're still relevant in our society today. A lot of people think something God did 3,000 years ago on Mount Sinai could not possibly be relevant in our society, our civilization, our culture today. In fact, most people say commandments one through four are not relevant at all. The greater majority of Americans can't even relate to commandments one through four. The only things they really see that are still relevant in the United States is thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill. They pretty much will buy into that worldwide. But when you start talking about adultery and coveting and lying and things like this, they just, you know, the, the commandments will condemn. Uh, the, the law came, sin revived, and I died. So uh, these are not the Ten Suggestions. These are the Ten Commandments. And a lot of the Jews will say these are just the Ten Statements because I am the Lord thy God, not a commandment, that's a statement uh, right out of the box, your, your first one. But the Christians call them commandments, they're also called the Decalogue, if I'm saying that right, Decalogue. And this is what Mo God gave Moses on Mount Sinai over 3,000 years ago. God wrote this in stone. And this is his, kind of a recap of his moral law. What, what are the Ten Commandments? It's the moral law of God. Can you imagine what the world would be like today if every human being kept the Ten Commandments? There would be no murder. There would be no stealing. In fact, there would be no war. In fact, there would be no drug addictions and alcohol addictions because when you get Commandment 1 through 3 right, if you could live that right, you, you wouldn't need any of these other things. You wouldn't need any other gods in your life, you, you know, if you get him number one. There would be no adultery. There'd be no lying. There'd be no coveting. I mean, can you imagine if you take covetousness out of our hearts in America, what life would look like? It would be so much different than what it really is. The Ten Commandments are not a bad thing. They're a good thing. It's not an evil thing. It's a, it's a, it's, now, you can't be saved by trying to keep them. You'll never keep them perfectly. And a lot of people think that's how you get saved. It's not true, but God didn't do away with the Ten Commandments. In fact, Jesus actually enhanced them, enhanced them. They're not Ten Suggestions, they're Ten Commandments. They're holy. Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So they're actually given to us by God, to us, to enhance our relationship with God and with each other. If you really want to understand 
you know, the heart of God, you need to understand the moral law of God and what, what morality is, what, what God really wants out of us, what's the standard of our life. I love Psalms 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. The law of the Lord is good. It's perfect, it's, it's clean, it's righteous, it's true. And uh, it's not an evil thing at all, it's, it's a good thing. They're relational. Commandments one through three deal with our relationship with God. Commandments five through 10 deal with our relationships with each other. And then the, commandment number four is the Sabbath day. And that's really the bridge between us and God and the bridge between us and relationships with each other. Jesus is the Sabbath day. Come unto him and you'll find rest. You'll, you'll, I'm not going to teach commandment four. Maybe next time I teach, I'll teach the whole thing on commandment four. But that's really the bridge between us and God. First three commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. Thou shalt not commit idolatry. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Those deal with our relationship between us and God. Number four is the Sabbath day. And then number five through ten are our relationships with each other. Are y'all on board with me so far? Amen. This is going to help you, I promise you, to understand the Ten Commandments. If we, if we just thought about the Ten Commandments every day, it would lead us to repentance. It was, it, it's, the Ten Commandments is not here to save us, but it's here to show us our need for a savior is the plumb line to show us our walls crooked. You know, carpenters use something called a plumb line. They drop it and you, you line up your wall with that plumb line. And if you really were to look at the Ten Commandments with an open, honest heart and ask the Holy Spirit to give you eyes to see, it'll show you your walls crooked. And uh, it's not there to save you, it's there to drive you to the Savior, it's there to, to take you to the cross. The law came, sin revived, and I died, the Apostle Paul said. Apart from Jesus Christ, we all break the law all the time. You can never be saved by trying your best to keep the law. Break the law in one point, you're guilty of it all. It takes more than me trying to be a good person to be saved. Jesus was the only good person. He's the only person to have perfectly kept the law. That's what's important to understand. He's the law giver. And the law giver was also the law liver. He lived the law perfectly. All Ten Commandments never broke them, not one time in his life. And a lot of us have never examined it. And some of your first thoughts on the shallow part of your mind is, oh, I don't break the Ten Commandments. I never break the Ten Commandments. Well, I promise you, if you let me just study this with you a while, you'll get to thinking, ooh, I broke that one. And ooh, I broke that one. And uh-oh, maybe I broke, maybe I break them all. See, Jesus came to enhance these things. You say he did away with the Ten Commandments. Now look what he said about each of the commandments. He, he enhanced them. He, he made them more difficult to keep. Commandments 1 through 3, again, our relationship with God. Jesus summed that up in Mark 12, 31. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, 
The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And see, if we could really go to the room of honesty here and see how well we're loving our neighbor as ourselves, we would realize, wow, something's not quite right there. I love myself more than I love strangers. I love myself more than I love people of different political affiliations. I love myself different than people of other religions. You know, I love, it's easy to love you guys. It's easy to love my family, but it's not so easy to love some people in the world. And that's our neighbor. Jesus said he wants you to love God with everything you've got and then love your neighbors yourself. If so, if we could get honest right there, we could see we're not perfect in that area of loving God. The fourth is the Sabbath day. So then there remains a rest for the people of God or whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his. God rested on the seventh day. He worked six days and on the seventh day he rested. This is so important that God would inscribe this in the stone of the law that he gave Moses this Sabbath day. And then when Jesus came to the earth, he healed on the Sabbath day, did miracles on the Sabbath day, he picked corn on the Sabbath day, they labored on the Sabbath day, they taught on the Sabbath day, and he kept telling people, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Whew. He is a Sabbath day. He Cease from your works, cease from all your works, and enter into the rest of God. We'll get on that later. I love that. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He didn't come to eliminate the Ten Commandments. He came to fulfill it. Matthew 5, 17, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall he be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't come to abolish the Ten Commandments. He came to fulfill them. Are y'all following that? Look what he said. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. You say, because most all, every one of us can say in our lives right here today, probably, maybe, I've never murdered anybody. I'm a good person. I've never murdered anybody. So Jesus is saying that's what it said in the old 3,000 years ago when God gave Moses the stone. It said, thou shalt not murder. And he says, whosoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever's angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You say, well, I've got a good cause to be angry. (laughs) You've heard that it was said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus' standard was even higher than what was written on stone. He's talked about loving your enemies. You've heard that it was said back in the old days, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if any... Did you hear that? Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We don't even, we pretend that verse is not in the Bible. Give, look at Matthew 5, 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
Wow. If someone's begging bread, begging me money, what does it say do? Give. What if somebody needs to borrow something? Loan it without interest even. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus raised the bar. He, he raised the standard. Yeah, you're to love everyone, even your enemies, even those that persecute you, even those that hate your guts. Now, when you're dealing with the law, you remember when Moses came down, what were the children of Israel doing? Worshiping a golden calf, dancing, music, par having a big party. They'd given up. They'd given up. They didn't think Moses was ever going to come down from the mountain. So Moses comes down and sees this gross idolatry. They're doing everything God just told Moses they don't want him to do. Moses got angry and broke the tablets. And uh, beloved, you and I break the tablets all the time. We break the law of God, whether you realize it or not. If you pray to the Holy Spirit, Lord, show me where I break your law. Show me where I break your heart. Show me where I'm an offense to you. Then the Holy Spirit will open your eyes and you can see this. We all break the law all the time. Again, law is not here to save you. It's to show you our need for a Savior. It's the plumb line to show us our wall is crooked. Now, these are Apostle Paul's words in Romans 7, 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I'm having trouble seeing that. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Paul is trying to explain here. I wouldn't even understand that covetousness is wrong if it didn't say in the law, thou shalt not covet. You know, God's law is a good thing. It's to show you where your, where your wall is crooked, where your will is crooked. It's to show you that your life is not perfect, and you need a Savior. You need Jesus, the only one that ever came to keep kept the law perfectly. You can call on him, and he'll write his law in your heart and in your mind. He'll, he'll, the new covenant says, now I'm going to take the law of God. I'm going to just engrave it in your heart and in your mind. And the law giver, Jesus, becomes the law liver through your heart and through my heart. Here 2,000 years after Pentecost, Jesus is still fulfilling his law in us and through us. Give the Lord a hand clap for that. You don't have to worry about keeping the law. He does it for you. The law giver becomes the law liver. The only way to keep the law is through Christ in us, the hope of glory. What do I do? I yield to the Holy Spirit. I, I yield to him and he flows out of me and he can love everybody the way God wants me to love them. I can't do that on my own, but he is love. You, you get full of him and you learn to yield to him and he'll flow out of you. You can keep the law. He keeps his own law perfectly. We don't keep the law. It's what the new covenant's all about. Now he comes and do it, does it for us and through us. 
All right, that's my summary on the Ten Commandments, my little recap. I want to just talk about these three commandments here first. Because if you don't see where you break these three, then the Ten Commandments become something that, well, it's in a courthouse somewhere. Or you hope it's in a courthouse. You know, if you see it in a courthouse, there's probably been a legal battle to keep it there. Because they've taken a bunch of them down all over America. This thing's so offensive to people, it's amazing. It's like they're scared to death of it. Probably because they've got big letters, thou shalt not commit adultery, and probably half of them are in some kind of adulterous relationship. I don't know why they hate them so bad, but the, the Ten Commandments are a beautiful thing. So this is the first three commandments. Commandments 1, 2, and 3. You find this in Exodus 20. You also find it later in the book of Deuteronomy. But the one we normally refer to is Exodus 20. And the first three are here, verses 2 through 7. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now, many people, especially the Jewish race, consider that commandment number one. Most Christians don't. Most Christians, you tack on to it, you should have no other gods before me. And then Christians mostly say, uh, idolatry, thou shalt not commit idolatry is commandment number two. So there's some confusion there because in the Jewish world, these aren't even called the Ten Commandments. They're called the Ten Statements, the Ten Facts. And uh, I am the Lord thy God is the most important one. But the way I read it, I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me, means put God first. Put him first in everything. And then commandment number two is a little different because that has to do with you creating these images and these idols which you give your heart to. So let's, let's read it that way as commandment number one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make for yourself the carved image. This is in New King James Version. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So don't commit idolatry, basically is what this is saying in number two. And then number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." So out of everything God could have said, he chose those three laws to properly put the boundaries up for a good relationship between us and him. For, for a human being to have a good relationship with God, he needs to be in sync with these three laws right here. He's the Lord thy God. No other gods before him. Don't create any false gods. Don't, don't create any images or idols in our heart and they don't take his name in vain. And we'll explore what that means in just a bit. So here we are again, these 10 commandments. You got these first three. That's what we're talking about today. Deal with our relationship with God. Number four, Sabbath day, which is Jesus Christ himself. And number five is our relationship with mankind, starting with honoring our father and our mother. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. Are y'all on board with me? First commandment, I am the Lord your God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You can go to Matthew 6, and Jesus put this in perspective. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? 
For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows you have need of these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He's simply saying, put God first. Put God first in your finances. Put God first in your relationships. Put God first in your marriage. Put God first in your career. Put God first in your, in your home, in your hobbies, in every aspect of your life. Make him number one. You know, Liz and I always talk about we went through a rough patch in our marriage because, man, we got married. She became my number one, and I was her number one. And we were so in love, we were goo-goo-eyed looking at each other all the time. We were just, just in love. And then what, you know, you put a human being first, guess what happens to your heart spiritually? You start drifting away from the Lord. We, we weren't even aware we were drifting away, but we had each other on a pedestal so high. But you know what fixed all that is when I looked at her and she looked at me and said, no longer are you going to be my number one, you're going to be my number two. Jesus is going to be my number one. Jesus, amen. And that fixed it. Our relationship's been way better now that we did that. And that's been several years ago. But we, we readily, openly acknowledge that we are each other's number two. Put, first, put God first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Don't seek your own kingdom. Don't seek your own pleasure. Don't seek your own. We think life's about our pleasure and our happiness. No, you're created for his pleasure. You're created for his glory. You're created for his happiness. So seek him first. Put God first in all you do. When you think of morality, I'm often reminded of the great book, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian books of our time. And to probably go down in history is one of the greatest of all time. But he talked about morality in three phases, and he likened it to a fleet of ships at the sea. Say you're in wartime and we've got a fleet of ships, and you're one of those ships. And the main thing you want to do is not bump into each other. You I mean, if you're in a fleet of ships and you're sailing across the world, you, you don't want to bump into each other. And, and usually when we think of morality in the Ten Commandments, our first thoughts or, or what would we do against our brother? We don't want to, you know, when you think about thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, all that has to do with bumping into each other, bumping into somebody else's ship. And, you know, but that's just one level of morality. The, the second thing and the more important thing you ought to think about is making sure your ship is running right. Make sure your, your engine's not on fire. Make sure you got oil and grease and you got everything that ship needs to run right. Quit worrying about your brother out there and bumping. Just so you hadn't gone to jail, you think you've been a good moral person just because you hadn't bumped into each other that bad? Look at your own ship, man. There's some problems in there. Thank you. <laughs> so... Level one is, is don't bump into each other's ship. Number two, make sure your ship's working good. Well, what's the third thing? Make sure you're going in the right direction. What if you were part of Nazi Germany in World War II following Hitler? You know, you may have not been bumping into anybody's ship. You may have been running all right. But look where that whole movement was going. I've been a part of movements. I've been a part of churches. I've been a part, you know, things not going in the right direction. What if you think you're sailing toward uh, London, but you're actually sailing toward Australia? When you get there, you, you showed up in Australia instead of London. 
See, morality is so much more than just you not bumping into your neighbor. There's so much more at stake here. It's really about your relationship with God. It's about your life. Are you on the same path that God has you on? Are you right where God wants you in your ministry, in your career, in your family, in your relationships? When you put God first and man second, put God first, money, other things, anything else down way below, get your priorities right and, and get God number one in your life, and it may change the whole direction you're going in your life. Are y'all following me here? Okay. Second commandment's idolatry. It says, don't make for yourself a carved image, an engraved image, and don't bow down and serve this thing because God says he's a jealous God and he'll visit the iniquity of this. You know, he's, he gets angry when you have idolatry. If you read your Old Testament, Israel was guilty of, of idolatry more than anything. When they came into Canaan's land, the, the constant problem was idolatry. I mean, they would have a good judge and they would serve God and, and everybody's moving toward God. And then idolatry starts creeping in the land and it takes over the land and then God would have to come back and his judgment would fall on them. It'd bring them back to their knees. A good judge would come and bring them back to the Lord and, and they'd go in this cycle. They'd, they'd slip back into idolatry again and God would have to judge them again and bring them back to their knees and they clean up the idols of the land. Read the Kings, read the Chronicles. All the times Israel fell into idolatry. And see, the deal is here in 2020, we don't have little statues in our homes. So you don't think you're guilty of idolatry because you don't have these little, you, you don't have a Buddha man in your home and you go and bowing down to your Buddha statue every day. You don't have a sex goddess as a statue or a money goddess or a power god or you don't have these. Now in India, you got, I don't know, over a million different gods, I think. You know, there's all kind of gods in India. There's all kind of, a lot of cultures do have these statues. In our Western civilization, what we enjoy here in America, you get very little of that. Now there is some of this, but very little where people actually will worship something they made with their hands. But what we do have is, is our hearts are image factories. And you may not make it with your hand, but you create these idols in your heart. And, and this, your heart churns out idols that you're not even aware of. And then it, the question is, what do you love? Because there's your idol. What do you trust? What do you obey? What do you serve? There's your idol right there. See, a counterfeit God, an idol can be anything. It can be a good thing that you turn into an ultimate thing. See, you're a son or a daughter is a good thing. Remember how Abraham came real close to making Isaac his ultimate thing. And why did God have to test Abraham in such a strong way? Because God wanted to be Abraham's all in all. God wanted to be Abraham's number one. He didn't want Isaac being his number one. And so when Abraham passed that test, it was the ultimate test Man, God knew he had his man now. He had Abraham who loved him way above his own son Isaac. So anything can be an idol. Money can be an idol. How do I know this? Because I, I live my life loving money, serving money. Man, you don't think you're serving an idol? When, you, when, you, when money's number one in your life, you, you give up family, you give up church, you give up your spiritual life. You, you do all you got to do to make money. 
And beloved, that's a, that's a cruel God right there. Money's a is not a good God. It's not a good idol. It's not worth it. And if anybody here is in that trap today, serving money, putting money in front of God, I beg you, let go of that false God. Repent of that. Just let it go. God's, God wants us to be content. We don't have to have more and more and more and more. God's calling us to a life of contentment, not a life of covetousness. In fact, the Bible calls covetousness idolatry, plain and simple. Colossians 3 verse 5. And idols when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. What do you get your security and your identity from? Some people get it from being beautiful. Their beauty can become an idol. Some get it from being rich. They're rich. They get their identity and their value because they're rich. Some people get it out of the ministry because the ministry gives them power and influence and they need to be successful in the ministry. Beloved, I've been prone to idolatry in all these areas as I've lived my life. I'm almost 59 years old now. Still got some more living to do and probably some more idols to discover. But I, I understand that any good thing can become an ultimate thing and it gets you crossways with God. God wants him to be number one in my life and he doesn't want me to have any other images competing for his affection. God's a jealous God. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. It's spiritual adultery. You're cheating on God if you've got a person or a career or your strength or your beauty or money or I can name 500 things that could become an idol if you're not careful. I know this is hard preaching. Everybody gets quiet when you deal with this. But if you don't realize you could possibly have some wrong images in your heart, then you're not going to get better. You need to see this. I'm praying the Holy Spirit will convict you and show you here. What do you get your security and identity from? What do you love and serve? That can become an idol. Some people let their romantic interests become an idol. It's just that simple. Some, I know guys that get a crush on a girl when they're real young in life, and that crush becomes a crush. It crushes the life out of them because they make that girl number one instead of God. An idol is something we can't live without. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It's the God of your own making. You make it with your own heart. There's that verse I said, covetousness is idolatry. All this lusting and desiring and wanting more and need to be richer and I need a better house and a better car and I need better clothes and I want people to look at me in a better light. I, need, I want a better name for myself. All this lusting and desire, covetousness is idolatry. I know that's, you just, I know people don't shout over this kind of preaching. <laughs> but we're going to plow through it anyway. You need to hear it. And idols, whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life has meaning then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. So you can see how people latch on to relationships thinking that person's going to make me feel worth something, make, make me feel secure. Or that job, if I get that job, that will give me the identity that I need. Or if I have a certain amount of money, then I'll finally feel secure. Let me tell you, there is no certain amount of money to ever do it. I've decided if I keep my bills paid on time, I'm doing real good. And that's enough right there. You don't need a certain amount of money to make you feel. Your net worth does not determine your real worth. 
Now, your banker will make you think that through life, that your net worth determines your real worth if you're a guy trying to borrow more and more money all the time, but it does not determine your real worth. Idolatry could be romantic love, family, children, money, career, your job. Could be whatever gives you power or achievement, success. Some people just need control. Just they've got hidden idols that, that really the, the, the underlying motive of it all is just wanting to boss and control. Some people it's about fitness, beauty. Some people don't have beauty or fitness, but it's all about brains, social standing, approval. Some people need control. There's a whole other group of people that need approval instead of control. And if everybody loves them, then they feel secure and satisfied. And idolatry could also be morality. Now, there's a big thought for you. It could be your ability to be such a good moral person could turn into an idol. Or it could be ministry or success in a ministry. So God's a jealous God. And uh, again, I want to remind you of the, the summary verse that deals with commandments 1, 2, and 3. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So when you've got God first and there's no, nothing competing with, for God's affection, there's no idols in your life and he's number one in your life, then it's easy just to love him with everything you've got, your heart, your soul, your mind, all the strength you have, and then to love others, to love your neighbors yourself. When there's an idol there, you're going to have trouble loving other people. When you don't have God number one, you're going to find yourself stumbling in this area of loving other people. You're going to want to love them, but you're just not going to be there. You're not going to find it within yourself to love the unlovely people of the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> so the reminder of these three verses, love the Lord your, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. Number two, thou shalt not commit idolatry. And then number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So this is the third commandment and maybe the one of the most bizarre out of all the commandments. And it's certainly the commandment that there's most disagreement over what it means. I, I read four different uh, web pages this week and all four these guys had a totally different take on it. And uh, you study with the Jews, you'll, you find some light going in, in a different direction. It's just interesting. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord thy God in vain? Well, what I see here is there's different levels of offense. And the lowest, simplest level for this would be to use God's name as a curse word. And most people think that's all this commandment means. But it goes so much deeper than that. Our, this is a serious thing to a lot of people. I was in a, I'm not sure the year, I hadn't been a Christian, but a few years. And I was with the Gideons. And we were up in North Mississippi at Parchment. It's a state prison up there, and they, I was young and full of zeal, so they throw me in the maximum security ward of the prison, and I'm in there, and I don't know, maybe 100 prisoners in this big room, and I'm walking around, got my bag of Bibles, I'm giving them Bibles, and I'm preaching to them, and all of a sudden, I run into a guy that was my best friend when we were six years old. He lived across the street from me, and uh, it was amazing. He recognized me. I don't know how he did. Maybe he heard me use my name or something. But there we were all these years, and we were together again. 
and he was all beat up in the face. And I said, man, what happened to you? He said, and see, his dad was the First Baptist Church in McGee, Mississippi pastor. So this was a preacher's kid. And he's in jail. I didn't even ask him what he's in jail for. I asked him what he was beat up over. His face was all beat up. I said, what happened? He said, well, somebody's popping off the other day using the name of the Lord in vain, so I whipped him. And he said, I got beat up and thrown in the hole for a few weeks for that. Now think of this. Here's this guy. He thought he was doing something that God would really be pleased with when he heard someone say, you know, GD in a, in a negative way. He went over and beat the guy up thinking, you know, because in his mind, you don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. So if, no one should. So he was going to enforce that law. And that always stuck with me as strange. But that, that's about the shallowest meaning of this verse. Okay, but that is a part of it. I know some people use the word Jesus in a negative connotation, almost in a cursing way. So you shouldn't use the word God or Jesus or any of the names or titles of God that we use in a, in a connotation that is damning or cursing in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But that's the shallowest meaning of this commandment. Number two would be not respecting or honoring God's name. And his name is his reputation, his nature, and his character. So when you understand God's got a nature that is holy and just and righteous, he's the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, and he won't allow anything to happen that's not for his, our good and his glory. And when you understand the nature of God, then we should always be hallowing his name and sanctifying his name and, and praising his name. So in other words, if God is holy and just, then why are we complaining? We're complaining because we're taking his name in vain. When you, when you realize his name is his nature, is his character, that is who he is. That's his reputation. And what you need to, when he told Moses to sanctify my name in, amongst the people, and Moses got mad and smote the rock again, it cost Moses Canaan's land. God wants a minister to sanctify the Lord's name in front of the congregation so every one of us can understand that God's a holy God. He's a good God. He's a just God. He's a fair God. Oh, man, and he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our admiration. He's worthy to be exalted. Sanctify the name of the Lord. Don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Don't put the name of the Lord thy God down in the mud. Don't, don't take his name and make, make some people think that God's this angry, mean old God that's out to beat you up. No, he is who he is, and he needs us all to sanctify his name. So that's level two. Level three, I believe, of a level of an offense is trying to pronounce his name with no respect or fear. Now, the reason I say this is because most of the Christian world doesn't get this, but the Jewish world does get this. You can read many, many Jewish web pages, and the Orthodox, conservative Orthodox, they, they see it real clear. The name of the Lord, I'll come back to this. I've, I've told y'all this, Some of y many of y'all know this. The name of the Lord's in the Bible over 6,000 times. And King James 
almost every time, six, over six, maybe 6,400 times. And King James writes capital L-O-R-D anytime you see the yud heh vav -Hey. And uh, other translations, like New King James writes capital L and a small case O-R-D most of the times. King James will write the word Jehovah eight, eight out of 6,400 times for some reason. <laughs> but this is the name of the Lord. He uses three weakest letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And these three letters really have no sound of their own. That Yud is the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the sound of the Yud is Yah. And then you get a Hey. And a Hey, the sound of the Hey is Hah. And then you get a Va. That's the sixth letter, Va. Y'all see Monster Drink out there with those three Vols, 666, you tell me this world's not crazy and corrupt and going to hell in a handbasket, I'm telling you, the vol. So here's the name of the Lord. So you can put vowels with this. In the original Hebrew, there were no vowels in the Bible. So when you start putting vowels to this is why you get so many different pronunciations. Depending on the, the vowel I put between the first and the second letter, it could say Yah or it could say Cha. So you get Yahovah or Jehovah. So there's a whole religion out there will fight you over the, over the pronunciation saying it's got to be Jehovah. And if you say Yahovah, you're missing it. Well, how do you get Yahweh? Again, a different set of vowels. It's the same name. Some people call him Yahweh. Some people call him Jehovah. Some people call him Yehovah. There's actually 72 different pronunciations with the primary vowels of people that we would use. But the Jews say it could go on endlessly or an infinite number of times, the different pronunciations. See, the Father is the unknown Father. Yehovah. Yehovah. He's a breath. He's a spirit. He's unknown. And Jesus came to put a face on the Father. Jesus came. We couldn't connect to the Father on our own. That's why Jesus had become a human being, so he could come to the earth and give us a hand to grab a hold of. Jesus had the hand of the Father, and he grabs our hand and takes us and connects us to the Father. This is why there's so much confusion over oneness and trinity. One, it, there's confusion over the name. People don't know what to call God. <laughs> I'll tell you, he's the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus means our Savior. The Lord, our Savior. That's what Jesus means. Jesus looked at Philip, and Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, I've been with you all this time. You asked me a question like that. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm not saying, yes, I am saying God is one, but God's a father, he's a son, and he's a Holy Spirit. Yes. Now, this confusion over his name shouldn't be because he only has one name. He has one nature, he has one reputation, he has one character, he has one name. The name, the Lord Jesus Christ, is good for me. I don't need another name. When I pray, I don't pray in the name of Yahweh. Man, I'm, I'm going to pray over my food. I'll do it in Jesus' name. Yes. There's one mediator between man and God, and that's the man, Christ yes. Jesus. Yes. When I'm going to pray for the sick, I pray in the name of Jesus because all power 
is in Jesus' name. If I'm going to cast the devil out, I do it in Jesus' name. If I'm going to pray any prayer, I do it in Jesus' name. So taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain, what the Jews say, if you try to pronounce this name, they think you're breaking the third commandment. Now, it would be like calling him Bubba or Dude or just some, you know, off name. So you know what the good Jews do with this? They say either one of two things. One is Hashem. That means the name. And when they read their Bible and they get to this word, they say Hashem. And they say his name is too holy to be pronounced. And other Jews say Adonai. Adonai means the Lord. That's what I say when I read my Bible and I see this. I'll say the Lord. The Lord's not a name. That's a title. He's the Lord. He's, he's the Lord, God Almighty. He's the Lord, our Creator. He's the Lord who redeemed us. He's the Lord. He, there's only one God. There's only one Lord. So don't get entangled over this name thing. So number three is trying to pronounce his name with no fear or respect. In other words, what you're doing is thinking you can have a relationship with the Father by circumventing the Son. You can't. We're, we're 2,000 years on this side of the cross. Every Christian in the world should see this, that the only way to have a Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no relationship with God the Father, the unknown Father, except through the Son. That's why we baptize in Jesus' name. There's only, you don't deny the name in the water. You don't deny the name over your food. You don't deny the name when you're praying and needing a miracle from God, beloved one, that's what Jesus is here to do. He's here to save us. He's here to deliver us. He's here to help us. So learn to call on his name. And then number four, the fourth level offense, in my estimation, the way I understand this commandment, is doing something evil or sinful in the name of God. Doing something like dragging God's name through the mud. Now, who, who can do that the easiest? is ministers ministers can if, if a minister gets crooked if a minister goes into deception starts lying if a minister gets corrupt for money it's real easy to do something evil. what are the what are the muslims do when they kill christians and behead christians in the name of allah see that would that's like the worst example i could but there have been christian people that have fought wars in the name of christ that have murdered in the name of christ and I'm not talking about those. I'm just trying to get us caught up in 2020. What's taking the name of the Lord thy God in vain is if you're doing something in Jesus' name in your life and you do something evil in his name and, and use his name to justify what you did, I think that's the sin of sins. Are y'all following that line of thought? Okay, so I believe there's four different levels to taking his name in vain, and, and that's them. So. I think I've spent too much time on this. If I wore y'all out really good. <laughs> Yeshua. Yeshua. What does that mean? The Lord, our Savior. It's interpreted Jesus. Yeshua. The Lord, our Savior. Jesus. That's the name. That's the name above all names. There's going to come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the name of Yeshua, Moshiach, Adonai, the Lord Jesus Christ, Yeshua, Jesus, Adonai, Lord, Moshiach, Christ. So you say, Yeshua, Moshiach, Adonai, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's his name. Are y'all following that? Well, let's stand and be dismissed. I hope y'all learned a little about the Ten Commandments. The next lesson.